0: It's evening, you fancy watching a film, Netflix beckons, you kick off your shoes, tune in to the latest 4K blockbuster, click, you press the button, and with no fuss fuss at all, a modern digital marvel happens. Terabytes of video, audio, and text are shuffled around the planet, your internet connectivity is measured, and in less than a second, you're watching... Scream 5, or whatever it is you want to watch in 4K UHD video and 5.1 audio, it's a modern mar- marvel because a block- that blockbuster occupies terabytes of space on the Netflix video servers. Yet you're connected by a piece of wet string and some Wi-Fi that you bodged together using a bit of glue. And what makes this all possible is compression. It's the unsung technical hero of the internet. Nothing works without compression, and that's what this lecture is about. So, let's try and put some numbers on it. Um, If we took the latest blockbuster, which as I speak is No Time to Die, the latest James Bond film, that's 163 minutes apparently, And if we were watching it in 4K video, then it would have 3,840 by 2,180 pixels. Uh, Films and images come in three channels in computers, usually red, green, and blue. So we usually allocate eight bits for each one of those. So that's 24 bits. And then they have a frame rate. that varies a bit, but let's say 50 hertz, 50 times a second. So if you multiply 3840... By 2180, by 24 bits, by 50, I reckon that's about 10 gigabits a second. And then, of course, you've got 163 minutes of that in the case of that film, so it's 100 terabits sitting there waiting to be thrown at you. And then you're connected if you've bought the sort of latest broadband, and you know somebody isn't playing Dungeons of Doom upstairs and all that sort of stuff. You, you could probably get around 25 megabits a second down your internet connection. So that is a compression ratio of about 400 to 1. You've got to reduce that information transfer by a factor of 400. So if I sort of put that in human terms for you, that's a bit like your postman sort of deciding to deliver... um, several thousand copies of the encyclopedia and jam it through your letterbox in the morning. You know, it's decidedly uncivilized, and it's really amazing it it works at all. So what does 400 to 1 look like? Um, Well, this is an image where I only retained uh, one in 400 pixels, and perhaps unsurprisingly, on the video resolution we're working at here, either in person or, or down the line today, you can barely see the pixels, my point is, even as I show the, the original image, um, it's completely incomprehensible, 400 to 1. You've deleted almost everything. And um, that idea of deleting information is what we call lossy compression. And lossy compression dominates the internet. Most uh, information squeezing is lossy, meaning that information is permanently Deleted before it is sent to you, um, and that 's what I want to talk about today, but before I get to that, I think we ought to talk about the other form of compression, which is loss less compression and um, I want to talk about lossless compression because it 's actually used by lossy compression, so you find that a lot of compression systems are built on the shoulders of other compression systems, and there 's going to be a bit of that evident in uh, in the lecture today. So in order to talk about lossless compression, let's just think for a moment about text. So here's an example of some text. And um, if you were going to send that text conventionally, what you would do is you would pick a coding standard for text, and the one that dominates the internet at the moment is one called UTF-8. Or if you're old school, ASCII, if you prefer. And the idea behind ASCII is that we 're going to use eight bits to represent each one of those characters now, if you think about that for a moment, you think well that 's a bit odd I mean because we we, we want to represent the alphabet so that 's the lowercase letters let's assume we're coding in English or a um, western alphabet, um, and then perhaps we need the uppercase letters you know so and then maybe we need the digits and we need a few bits of amount of punctuation and maybe you know a few sort of control characters but 256 we don't need 256 for most of our texts so it seems a bit redundant already indeed it is so that's one possible area of redundancy that we could explore which is just using the right number of bits for something and then the second thing that might strike you if you think about it for a bit longer you think well hang on um Not all the characters in English or or French or whatever are equally probable. You know, some of them occur very frequently in English and French. The letter E is the most probable, for example. So wouldn't it make sense to use a fewer fewer number of bits for the letter E? Well, that's a good idea. Even if there was a cost, which was maybe we'll use more bits for the letter X. um, on average because there's so many e's we will get a saving so that's one that's another idea that we could sort of uh play with now okay so let's just think about that so let's imagine we were coding a word like um uh, need n e e d so we would have the um whatever symbol we're going to use for n and then we've got this symbol for e well let's go let's go mad let's give it one bit right so a one for E, and then another one because need has two E's, and then whatever we're going to use for D. So we've got something, one, one, D. Ah, we need to be careful, don't we? Because we need to think now about how we code the other symbols because if, for example, we were coding O with two bits, one, one, for example, then need blank, something 1 1 dump is the same as nod, isn't it? Because O is two ones. So if we're going to use a fewer number of bits to encode common things, then we're going to need to be really careful that we can uniquely decode everything. So the way you often state that is you want to make sure that every code word is not a prefix of any other code word. Okay, well, that's an old quite an old problem in uh, computer science, and it has a solution. Um, it's a very, it's a quite interesting one, actually. It was thought up by a guy called David Huffman uh, in 1952, and his, his scheme is called Huffman Coding, and it's the sort of standard uh, bit of, it's one of these things that gets taught again and again in computer science. You know, uh, Just as in social science, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is taught again and again and again, because it's very beautiful and people like to teach it again. Huffman coding is just like that. Anyway, um, this is one of Huffman's examples from his original paper. He's an interesting guy, David Huffman. He was an undergraduate. So he's one of the few undergraduates to have published something that's still in use and very foundational in computer science. And uh, he said, well, let's just look at this little toy example, which has eight uh, letters in it. A, T, C, G, S, -S 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 B, Z, and P, and he said, let's just assume that the letter A uh, appears with a probability of uh, 0.22, 22% 22 of the time, letter T 20%, and so on and so on, down to the letter P, which only appears 2% of the time, 0.02. So what he did was he constructed a set of probability tables associated with this, and this is the first one. So I ranked the letters from the most probable to the least probable. A is up here, P is down here. And this is this repeated over here, that's the rank list on the left. Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to group together the most improbable symbols, and I'm going to do that as sets of pairs. So the first thing we're going to do is to group Z and P, and we're going to create this new symbol, which is a sort of combined ZP sort of symbol. And that that has a probability not of 0.05, not of 0.02, but the sum, which is 0.07. And then we're going to do that again. Uh, And this time it doesn't go on the end because we're sorting by probability each time. And then we're going to do that again and then again and again and again until we've added them all up. And that's called the Huffman tree. And then to navigate our way through that tree, we're going to use bits. We're going to use 1 to go one way down the tree and 0 to go the other way down the tree. And that's how we generate the code. So let's use a 0 and a 1. And you can see that the probability 0.42, which I've labeled with a 1, also exists in the previous column. So that 1 over there will transfer up to that 0.42 there. Uh, This has got a split. And we'll use a zero for the upper part of a split and a one for the lower part of a split. So I just add a zero on the, uh, on the end, or, or a one on the end of that symbol. And so you go throughout the whole system, s- splitting and adding and splitting and adding. And that set of pink numbers on the left is a final code. It's a bit difficult to see, so I'll just write it up the top there. So, um, and this is Huffman coding. Um, Now decoding is really quite easy, you just look for these patterns and because each one isn't a prefix of any other, as soon as you've seen a pattern you know you've got the symbol, you strip it off and start counting again. So uh, the symbols uh, A and T here are encoded with two bits, Uh, well that makes sense because they are the most probable symbols, and the symbols Z and P are encoded with five bits. And that sort of makes sense, because they're the least probable symbols, so we don't mind spending a bit more effort on them. Now then, um, so we've already made some progress, if you like, because if we have been using uh, the standard for the uh, ASCII or or UTF-8, then we'd be using 8 bits per symbol, which would be fairly wasted. Um, If we had realised that, well, we've only got 8 symbols, so... um, we could use uh, two to the power three, uh, so three uh, bits. That would have been uh, quite a saving over the sort of naive code. By the way, the naive code is the one that we is used on the internet all the time. Um, but now with Huffman coding, we need. It's a bit more complicated to work out the average length. But what we'll do is we'll just multiply those probabilities by the length of the code. So the letter A had a probability of 0.22 it has two bits, so we have 0.22 times two. The letter T had a probability of 0.2, that also has two bits. So you work out that average, and in this case, it works out at about 2.8 bits. So you might be sort of decidedly underwhelmed by this, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you think 0.2-bit saving, that's hardly worth having. You couldn't be further wrong. You know, 0.2 bits multiplied by millions and millions of characters, that's very worth having. Thank you very much. So, um, yes, that's that's definitely that's definitely a win for uh, Mr. Huffman. Now, next question arises: Could we do better? Is Huffman the best code? Right? Is there a minimum code length? Well, that's a very interesting question, very useful when you... If if the answer was yes, and the answer is yes, um, that's incredibly useful, isn't it? Because you've got a lower bound on what you could ever do. And lower bounds are sort of fantastically wonderful things. Well, I would say that because my PhD was on lower bounds. But, you know, I mean, I I think they're generally very useful. Um, And they're very annoying to engineers, actually. Uh, Oh, well, you can't do better than this is always a sort of a goad to any good engineer. Um... Well, the lower bound was devised by a man called Claude Shannon, who was one of the pioneers of um, information theory. And if you go through the back catalogue of Harvey's lectures in Gresham College, there's quite a bit of mention of uh, Claude Shannon. He's a sort of um, secret hero of all computer scientists. So um, I'll take you very quickly through the argument. It, it's not very important. Um, it's, it's, I think it's neat, but the fact that something is neat doesn't need not. Um, Need not detain you if you don't think it's neat. That's fine. What he said was this. He said, well, let's imagine a symbol appears with a probability P, um, in which case you can always express a probability as 1 over something, can't you? So you could say, you know, um, something's uh, 1 in 10, meaning there are 10 possibilities associated with that probability. So if we're going to use bits to represent n possibilities, then I've already used this argument before. I said... 2 to the 8 was 256 when I was talking about ASCII or UTF-8, and I said 2 to the 3 is 8 when I was talking about that. So 2 to the i is n. And that relation, you can write it like that, or the way Shannon wrote it is like this. i equals minus log 2 to the p. And if you're sort of scratching your head about that, you just apply a few logarithms, and it's exactly the same, but... It's an alternative way of representing probability. So um, you don't have to say it's a one in a million chance, as you might do in everyday conversation. You could equally well say it's a 20-bit information chance. And believe me, there are information engineers who say exactly that. We rub our hands when people uh, talk talk in terms of bits. It's a little bit easier to talk in terms of bits than these silly small numbers that appear in everyday life. So that's information or the Shannon information as it's sometimes called and then we just take the average of that over all of our symbols and if you do that in this case you end up with 2.75 bits so we've got this nice hierarchy with this little problem which was we had eight bits which was the sort of dumb answer if you like we had three bits which was required a little bit of thought we had the Huffman answer which was 2.8 and then we had the absolute best you can achieve which was the Shannon answer which was 2.75 it's okay. You will sometimes hear said in lectures, and believe me there are quite a few YouTube lectures on this topic, that the Huffman code is in some way optimal. Okay, that's my alert to say uh, it isn't, right? Um, <laughs> Huffman code is only optimal under some very special circumstances. Now, those circumstances usually appear in undergraduate textbooks because it makes them easy to compute the Huffman code. And the special circumstances is when those probabilities are exact powers of two, the Huffman code will achieve the uh, lower bound. But in general, it won't. Uh, It won't be wildly off, but it will be off. And the truth is that sort of -of state-of-the-art codecs tend not to use Huffman code. That said, I am going to tell you about one in a moment that does use the Huffman code, and it is very commonly used. so don't just—we're not just going to sort of dismiss Huffman. I'm not going to be one of those wicked lecturers who spends 15 minutes telling you something and then says, "Oh, we don't do it like that anymore." You know? No, I mean it is used. The 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 thing that is used, perhaps, uh, if you really want the absolute ultimate, in uh, is is the arithmetic uh, coder. Now then, the arithmetic code does pose a real sort of exciting problem for us in the sense that um, there are some quite good explanations, about the, the, let's be honest, there are some quite bad explanations of arithmetic codes on YouTube. I mean, some of them are virtually unwatchable, you know, they consist of people in front of blackboards giving what is essentially regurgitated bits of textbook. But there is at least one that I found, uh, given by a, a gentleman called the mathematical monk, and I thoroughly recommend it to you. Um, if you choose to watch all of his lectures, you will have expended between eight and nine hours of your life watching them. Um, so it's a bit technical, arithmetic codes. So I'm just going to squeeze it down to maybe 40 seconds, but obviously we're going to make some fairly serious approximations as I, as I go through it. Here's the idea. So uh, this is one of uh, this gentleman's examples, actually, because um, I know it works out very nicely. Let's imagine we had a much simpler problem, which was an alphabet. That's what I'm indicating with this funny, curly letter here, of three symbols. I'm just going to call them 0, 1, and 2. And I'm going to say the probabilities associated with those symbols, p naught, P1, and P2, are 0.2, 0.4, and 0.4. So, so far, so good. That's a problem setup which looks just like the Huffman example that I was dealing with, but not 8 characters you'll see why not eight in a moment I'm just doing three and the idea behind uh, arithmetic codes is to use uh, an interval to express all of those probabilities so we're going to say let's imagine there's a vertical line that runs from zero to one and so these intervals here represent the probabilities so at the bottom there we've got p zero which is the point two then we've got P1, which is a length 0.4, so 0.2 plus 0.4 equals 0.6. And then we've got the final one, which is the uh, another 0.4, and that adds up to 1. Okay, and we could, if you like, just label those intervals with the bits of the alphabet that we're going to send. So uh, down here we've got 0, and then 1 and 2. So if we had a message that we wanted to send, let's say it's 210, each one of these digits is used to select the part of the interval... That is appropriate. So the first digit in this message is 2, so that selects the top of this uh, little interval, and we re-expand that again into uh, these little segments again. So the bottom segment would represent two zero, and then that's 2, 1, and that's 2, 2, and because the next digit is 2, 1, we're going to select the middle one of the top one and expand that. And so... If we label those, then we'll have 210, 211, and 212. And clearly, our message 210 is contained in the lower of these final segments. Right. Now, what is not obvious, and w- what I'm afraid will only be obvious with uh, another, another f- maybe four or five hours of tuition, is that you could represent this as a floating point number. Um, But that's where our message sits. It sits somewhere in that interval. You can imagine a floating-point number sort of directing you somewhere into that interval. And that's easy to envisage. And what this rather unintelligible scrawl says is what we're going to do is find a binary number that sits completely in that interval. So, that's a bit hassly. You've got to convert it into binary and then you've got to deal with intervals and so on and so on. It's a bit, a bit of a fiddle. And I'm just here to tell you that an answer to that happens to be the binary number point 0.1, whatever it is. So, the basic idea behind arithmetic codes is to convert your message string into this long string, which itself is a uh, floating or fixed point uh, binary number. Now, why would you bother? <laughs> What's wrong with Huffman? Well, um, let's skip to the next slide, and I'll sort of talk about that. Now, um, one of the things about lossless uh, compression is that it depends on knowledge of those probabilities. So let's start there. You know, I. I so far I've set up two examples where I said, let's assume the probabilities are, are these. And um, I don't know if you noticed the first bit of text I put up. Did you clock it? It was, um, it was a translation of a novel from Georges Perec, um, translated by a guy called Gilbert Adair, and the novel was called A Void. And it's one of those novels called a lipogram, which doesn't contain any uses of the letter E. So it was a little bit of a trick on my part. I said, oh, E is the most common letter in the English language whilst glibly putting up in front of you an example of text that doesn't contain any E. So if we'd used the Huffman table for English or French in general, uh, we would have not got the optimal code. So one of the issues with naive um, lossless code, uh, Huffman, for example, is that you're sort of fixed in the probability table. And one of the nice things about arithmetic coding is it's possible to adapt that as you go through the uh, system so it builds um, an optimal code. Another nice thing about arithmetic coding is um, it doesn't have to work in blocks. It can work with a stream of uh, data. That said, um, I think it's already obvious that lossless compression relies on there being information redundancy. If there's no redundancy in the signal, we get no compression. So if you were to generate random digit strings or random character strings, then none of these methods give you any uh, compression at all. In fact, they usually make things worse because they add on some signalling and some sort of wrapper data which tells the other end what's going on. Um, And it's a critical point, really, that some information sources are inherently more redundant than others. That said, um, you can swing that the other way and say, well, some redundancy is incredibly common and you you can build special coders to look for it. And I've just picked out two examples of that which are quite common and quite well used. The first one is called run length uh, coding or run length encoding, RLE as it's often called. And um, here's an example. So I've taken here an image. It's a, a binarized image. You don't normally see these anymore, but this is an image which is everything. The pixels have either been forced to be black or white. And actually, it's a picture of Claude Shannon, the invention of the founder of uh, the founder of information theory. He's in his uh, graduation robes, actually striding through the University of East Anglia, where I work, because he's an honorary graduate of there. Um, and um, what I've done is I've taken a scan line through. Uh, Claude's head here and I've plotted the intensity as 500 pixels that run across here now a sort of naive way of encoding this would say well there's 500 pixels so they're either 0 or 1 that's 500 bits required to send that what run length encoding does is say well hang on um, wouldn't it be simpler just to encode what the value is and how long we have to go along so that's what this does, it says well at pixel 41 which is just here we've got a run of two. And then at pixel 48, we've got a run of 16. And at pixel 175, we've got a run of 140. It's not the only way you can code runs. You could equally well code it by change points, if you like. But the idea here is that you can get very significant compression when you've got data that is very, very similar or identical to each other. Now, I've picked uh, binary images, but um, this idea of runs comes up um, quite a lot, and a compressor, set of compressors I'm not talking about very much in this lecture, uh, the LZ compressors, uh, stands for Lempel and Ziv, LZ77, so-called cool because it was published in 1977, LZ78, and the, the fast one, the, the one that turned out to be very controversial, uh, called LZW. Um, do use some dictionaries and are able to exploit this sort of thing. Um, So here's another wheeze, which is you might say, well, okay, if I can encode runs really neatly, um, why don't I resort the data so that similar letters and symbols or identical letters and symbols are next to each other? And you think, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, hang on. The sort vector, which is the vector that tells me how to sort it, is as long as the data I'm sending in the first place. Ah. That's not going to work. Ah, well, there's a great wheeze. So if you've ever used Bzip, um, then it uses this wonderful wheeze called the Burroughs-Wheeler transform at the start of it. And Burroughs-Wheeler uses the data itself as a sort. Um, and it works like this. So if you took a, um, a perfectly normal English text string, um, this is, you will recognize this, no doubt, as um, part of modern culture, knowing me, knowing you, aha. Uh-huh. Um, What you could do is you could produce multiple copies of that. Each one cyclically shifted one step around from each other. Ignore the quotes at the front and back of a string. That's just my uh, computer program, not stripping them off properly. Um, But you can see I'm cycling each one of these ones around. And then I sort each one of these lexically. So that means uh, you sort them by the um, UTF-8 code... Uh, at the front of the string, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So that's that. So that is a lexical sorting. It might not be quite obvious to you, but you can see down here, we've got all the strings beginning with A, and then we've got the strings beginning with C, and D, and E, and so on. Up here, we've got some weirdness, but that's all punctuation characters and spaces and so on. Instead of sending this, we will send this last column Right. And this last column contains all of the information that was in the original string, but in a different order. And if we look at it, hey, brilliant, right, we've got lots of similar things clumped together. So the Burrows-Wheeler transform is a cunning way of getting runs out of a data. Yeah. Um, it just forces it run, runs out of a data. And there's an inversion algorithm for this, uh, which is equally neat. Right then. Um, so far, so good, or so far, so bad, depending on your position. What we're sort of describing at this point is a tweedledum, Tweedledee uh, coder in which the coder has this sort of inverse twin called the decoder, the decompressor, that has to exactly mirror the algorithm used for compression. And you might say, well, you know, isn't that obvious? You know, that's the whole point. Actually, um, it's not so obvious, and... Um, It it is a fact, so it means people who design compressors... And by the way, there was a lot of commercial interest in designing universal compressors. Lossless compressors are often thought of as universal compressors. Put the data in. If it gets smaller, send it. If it doesn't, then just send it raw. Um, You have to design a pair. You design the encoder and the decoder. That tends to stifle innovation a bit. Another way of thinking about it would be to say, well, let's imagine I didn't have to send the exact copy of the data. So a sort of mental model for that was, let's imagine um, you're listening to this beautiful symphony, uh, but you haven't got any bandwidth to send it. So what you'll do is you'll send, and you want to describe it to your friend, so you'll send your friend the score, you know, because you can post the score down a very low bandwidth a uh, connection called the, you know, the, called the post office. Uh, and then your friend, the other end, has an orchestra and he or she just recreates the symphony. Now, you can see immediately the issue with that, which is the recreation is not exactly what, was, what you're listening to, but it might be close enough. Right? Furthermore, if your friend doesn't have the full 80-piece orchestra that you were listening to, and all he or she has is a tin whistle and a tambourine, they can still sort of make some sort of approximation to it. So that is the principle behind loss coding. Lossy coding really is designed to give an impression of what's being seen at one end in a way that is acceptable to the receiver. And um, it's quite a different way of thinking about it. And, of course, it, once you work like that, you can realise that the... the the person who made the compressor need not be the same person that makes the decompressor because the algorithm, if you like, for reconstructing the thing the other end, um, need not be followed in quite the same way as the constructor. And you'll see that when I talk about an example. And that allows for innovation, it allows for, um, it allows, and it's much more practical, you know. So. If you're watching YouTube, well, this lecture goes out on YouTube, so we know that people are watching this lecture on all sorts of weird and exotic devices because YouTube is particularly broadly applied. Across it. people watching on mobile phones and Android devices, and probably somebody's watching on some grandiose multi-screen entertainment system. They all use different decompressors, video decompressors, uh, but they're all compressed using the. Uh, well, I don't know, I forgot to ask, but whatever the wonderful boxes that Gresham College is using to do the live compression of this lecture as we speak. Now, lossy compression then dominates the internet. How does it work? OK, well, let's pick one. I'm going to pick one to do with images, known as JPEG, and I've picked that because almost everyone will have used it at some point in their life. And um, JPEG stands for the Joint Photographic Experts Group, which is the name of the team that had a go at... Uh, producing the uh, compressor, compressor, and it was sort of came out of a, a committee effort. The committee was led by a guy called Graham Hudson, who was at British Telecom in uh, the UK, um, but, you know, it was an international effort. And it was about the mid-1980s that um, the work was done on JPEG, so it's quite antique. Uh, one of the interesting things about JPEG, and something that's been copied by quite a few lossy compressors since, is it has a sort of knob called quality. It's got a quality knob, which when you're encoding, you can turn. So what this graph shows in the red line is the size of an original image. I'm going to show you that image in a moment. Um, And then the blue line is the size of the compressed image as I, if you like, turn the quality knob down. So the first thing to observe is even a so-called 100% quality, there's a very dramatic compression to be had out of this thing. And the second thing to observe is that there are incredibly dramatic compression ratios over here on the left-hand side. So lossy compression gives these spectacular uh, compression results, which is why it's so ubiquitous. Now, in order to illustrate it, I've picked a a test image taken from this paper cited at the bottom here, which is a a, a, a paper about um, digital forensics. Uh, And it's this image here, so this is the original image. Test images are usually very boring indeed, and I I sort of scoured through this test set looking for this image, and I I find it quite fascinating actually. Um, It's a a ferry, I think, in Ho Chi Minh City. One of the authors is Vietnamese, so I assume he went home and took the pictures. But it features this incredibly exotic woman sort of striding off the ferry, looking to my mind a bit like a model, um, but for some explicable reason wearing stripy pyjamas. uh, anyway, um, I'm going to focus on these stripy pyjamas because I've become slightly obsessed with the, with the image, and I think it's a perfect test image because it contains lots of detail, bits of detail, and lots of no detail. Right then, this is the original. This is what it looks like at 90% quality number, and this image is 1 thirteenth uh, of the size, so it's a 13 to 1 uh, compression ratio. I challenge anyone in the virtual or physical audience to see the difference if you can see the difference between those two images i suggest you put yourself forward as an image quality tester because i can't and i'm going to keep going and i'm going to warrant that you still can't see any difference good you're all silent yeah i should think you can now just about see a difference yeah and now we're at 100 to 1 compression ratio and the quality thresholds that 10%. I can't remember if I went any further. Yeah. Okay. So now we're at 161 to 1%. And you can see, you can start to see something. However, there's a very, there's a philosophical point in compression actually, which is, you might see a different image in the eye, but whether you actually interpret or understand the image in a different way is a rather fascinating and interesting um, question. Perhaps, I'm not sure I've got time to talk about that this time, but there is a lecture from me that does talk about an alternative form of information which is based upon algorithmic um, uh, information. And it's more closely related to the meaning. But let's just just focus on visuals for the time being. So I think we would all agree, certainly 50 to 1, which is, this is nearly 50 to 1, is perfectly achievable out of JPEG. And I'm not really trying very hard. I didn't use... I didn't use a very fancy JPEG compressor. I just used one that was knocking around in MATLAB, which is one of the standard mathematical tools used by image processors. Now, how does it work? OK, so let's have a zoom into the stripy pajamas, these famous stripy pajamas. So on the left here is the raw image. By the way, um, raw is exactly what uh, an, an uncompressed image is usually called. And um, JPEG compression is so ubiquitous it can be very difficult to get a raw image because if you buy your camera, it may not give you access to the raw data. Um, It does the JPEG compression in the camera so that it can minimise the amount of uh, storage it has to have on board. Storage is still quite expensive in cameras and so it can keep the data rate under control. So this is a it was a bit tricky to get raw images. You can see probably in physical, and maybe virtually, that the image on the right appears to have some sort of dicing up. It's got these little squares in it. Okay, That is the f- one of the fundamental features of uh, JPEG. Now then, how does it work? Well, it's really a set of five, I've call them tricks. You know, They're sort of visual illusions that are vital to... Um, JPEG, and I'm going to talk through them all because they've been widely copied in subsequent standards. So the first trick is to just throw away data, right? It was completely, you know, what's the word? Capricious. We don't need that. We'll throw that away. We'll never need it. And, And that's an important point which we'll talk about. Then it does this block trick. It splits it into eight by eight blocks and it approximates them with equations. Then the coefficients of those equations get sliced and diced. Then we rearrange the order in which we scan those so that we maximise the runs, thinking about what I said earlier about run length encoding. And then we use Huffman coding, yay! Still going uh, since 1952 um, to compress it. Now, there is a version of JPEG that uses arithmetic coding. By the way, I should warn you, Coding is a very competitive area commercially, obviously, if you can build a good coder then people like it. Um, So there's a lot of marketing pressure from companies to say they support various standards. But most standards are themselves baskets of huge numbers of options. So when somebody says, for example, they support, um, I don't know, H.265 video coding, you need to ask closely which bits they're supporting because they're probably supporting the easy bits So arithmetic coding, although it's an option in JPEG, I'm not entirely clear how many decoders support it. Now, what happens at your PC, of course, is you just reverse all of that. Um, And um, I should say that reverse um, compression is usually called decompression in the uh, computer science world. It's sometimes called expansion. And you can put compression and expansion together to form a new word called companding, Compounding is usually used in a very technical sense for a particular type of audio processing nowadays, so it's not usually used for for data compression, but I I suppose it could be. They have similarities. Right, trick one then, throwing away data. Well, if you're looking at this in the physical audience, you would probably agree that the blue grating goes a little bit fuzzier before the red and the green grating. that's a rather primitive um, observation, that the eye is able to tolerate some redundancy, some spatial redundancy, in different colours. And um, we don't work in RGB, um, but JPEG works in a different colour space called um, YCBCR. So. That's illustrated in this slide here. So on the left-hand side, I'm illustrating an image as it's stored in most computers, which is a, a set of planes, a red pixels, green pixels, and blue pixels. And then we convert it into three new channels. One is called the luminance channel, and that's usually indicated by Y, and you can just think of that as the brightness. And then there are always two others. Um, and JPEG happens to use two channels called chrominances. And um, there's a long and complicated reason why it chose the blue and red chrominants to do with legacy and the state of colour science at the time. There's a big group that works on colour science at the University of East Anglia, where I work, and I can hear them now screaming at me down there, saying, why won't you talk about perceptual colour spaces? And the answer is, that's another lecture, but let's, we'll just work in these two colour spaces. Now, JPEG and a lot of MPEG video cameras, in fact, probably the camera that's streaming this, allows itself right at the early stage to just quickly throw away some of these CB and CR pixels. So if you ever see digital video referred to as 444 or 422 or 420 video, that's what it means. If it's not 444, then it's throwing away stuff. The precise nomenclature of 420 is difficult to interpret. I can never remember it, and there's lots of boring YouTube videos that explain it if you're interested. So that's step one. Throw away color data quickly. Right then. Trick two is the approximation trick. So how does that work? Well, let's just think about the luminance, the Y channel. And let's just, for illustration, let's just look at a line through that. So this is an intensity line drawn through this. So the lady's pyjamas have this stripieness on it, and that's the rapid variation. And there's also some shadowing, I think, which is causing this slow variation here. And the approximation that, uh, uh, well, the equivalence that JPEG uses, is we could represent this as a summation of cosines. So that's, if you're familiar with the term, that's a form of Fourier approximation. So the way that works is like this. There are 64 pixels here, and we say these are completely equivalent to these 64 numbers, which are the discrete cosine transform coefficients. And each one of these numbers on here tell us how much of a cosine at a particular frequency to add up in order to get that signal. And I can just show you that now. So this is a bit of a complicated diagram, but this is the original, the blue. So that blue line there corresponds to this blue line here. This is the, sine, the cosine wave and its size. So that represents what we call the DC, the constant value here. It's a big one. And this is me superimposing it here. So if I approximated this uh, waveform with one coefficient, I would get the red line. If I added the next coefficient, which looks like that, then I would get this red line, and so on. So as I'm adding in these coefficients, and I'm adding them in by size, can you see that I don't need that many coefficients to get reasonably accurate approximations to the underlying image well that's really very encouraging and it's particularly encouraging because um look here i am i'm at 20 coefficients i pretty much reconstructed the thing 20 is a lot less than 64 which is what i started with that's good and it turns out you can do the discrete cosine transform very fast in hardware so that's fantastic There are also a whole load of statistical reasons why you might want to choose the DCT. That's another series of lectures which we'll have to just park and uh, talk about at some other time. Right then. So, quantisation. OK, well, um, the first bit of quantisation is just to say, well, maybe we don't need all those coefficients, so we'll just set some of them to zero. Actually, we can do something a bit more subtle than that. We could say, the coefficients themselves, do they need to be sent that accurately? I mean, couldn't we use just small numbers to send them. Right? And since we're sending blocks of these things, couldn't we sort of approximate them with a rough vector? That's called vector quantization. Well, there are whole PhDs written about vector quantization, but it's a simple idea, really, which is we won't send everything, we'll send an approximate version of those coefficients for that 8x8 eight eight block. And if we approximate all those blocks similarly, then we only need to send the index to the approximation, and that's a lot quicker. So that's the the quantization step. Now clearly you can do that very well or very badly, so a coder might spend quite a bit of time on its quantization. The decoder doesn't care, it just says, give me the formula, I'll reconstruct it. Trick four, zigzag scanning. So to understand this, let's just take a block out of this image, say this upper block here. Oh look, it's all constant, or mostly constant, because it's a gray, lowering sky of the type you see in Vietnam. Uh, These are the values. Um, They're all around 172, 174, something like that, quite constant. This is the two-dimensional discrete cosine of that, and it's dominated by this very large number up here. These numbers, these are the low-frequency numbers, are larger than these numbers down here. And generally speaking, that tends to be true. Most of these image patches are quite smooth. They're not really uh, very jaggy, so... If I scan this out in the right way, and JPEG specifies what's called a zigzag scan rather than a sort of raster scan, what you get is a sequence of numbers, which is building up over here, which starts with this big one. That's the average coefficient, the DC. And then it goes very rapidly to all these small numbers. Oh, look! A run! We could use run length encoding! Brilliant! That's the idea behind zigzag scanning. And then the final bit, well, here's the whole pipeline. right? So in comes our test image. This is Gold Hill in Shaftesbury, which was one of the original test images for JPEG. Uh, we convert it to uh, Y and the chromaticity. Then we throw away stuff. That's the downsampling of the chrominance channels. Then we do our DCT. Then we, thro- we don't fully represent all of those numbers. That's the quantization, zigzag scanning, Huffman coding, which we've already covered. Out comes the file. Woo-hoo. That's JPEG. Simple. Right. Still in use today. Marvellous bit of engineering. But I hear you cry, um, and not without reason. Um, what about movies? You, you started this lecture with movies. You finished with movies. Fine. Here's a, here's a simple one. Motion JPEG. We'll code each frame using a JPEG, and we'll send that. Right? That is very common. If you've got a cheap video camera, it probably does that can't be bothered to do anything else. If you've got a security camera, it's probably doing that. But one of the key things about movies is that they have motion in them. So maybe we can get some extra coding. Okay, here's one of the standard test sequences from the MPEG effort. Uh, This is called the Foreman sequence, and I'll just play it for you. This is how the whole of MPEG was developed, actually, these little test sequences and lots of people looking at them in rooms. It's a handheld shot, it's got a lot of motion in it. But if I just take some frames from it, and let me just overlay on it a square that's in exactly the same coordinates with regard to the image. So this is me doing an overlay here, so this square here. Oh, look, this square here is all, well, it's identical to this square here, so the camera hasn't shaken at that bit. So there's an obvious saving, right? We don't need to recode all of this. We'll just send this bit again, right? Now, these, are, these have moved a bit. Let's see if I can show that. Ah, well, but not much. So couldn't I just code the motion? Yes, you can. So what MPEG does is it looks for these motion vectors from adjacent or not adjacent frames and codes them and then it sends the difference if, if, so if there's been some uh, perspective change or something like that then you know it has to code a bit of different a bit of extra error as we would call it but remember these are 8x8 eight eight blocks eight, I, 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 I haven't drawn an 8x8 eight eight because it would be minuscule on the diagram I drew something much bigger and 8x8 eight eight blocks, they're very small so you don't get that much change so the encoder has this rather sophisticated algorithm called a uh, Motion Vector uh, Finder, if you like. And the, the aim of the uh, motion encoding is to find absolutely the best vector from each one of those blocks to the next block. Now, MPEG does it in a special way, but it's been widely copied. What MPEG does is it has three types of frames. It has something called an I-frame, which is a that's a frame it's going to code like jpeg then it has these other frames p frames and b frames and they are predicted from the i frames p frames are predicted forward and b frames are predicted in between things obviously you can get better compressions with b frames because you're looking ahead but one of the problems with using b of course is that you have to have a buffer in the coder and buffers mean latency And latency is one of those things that bedevils digital, it drives me crazy, I can't, I don't know if you can... The latency on digital video streams is often badly out, and um, it shouldn't be, but it, it often is, so you can tell it because the audio stream is no longer synced up with the video stream, and it means somebody's put a buffer in somewhere to do some coding, or transcoding, transcoding is converting from one sequence to another sequence, it causes... Uh, a buffering and somebody forgot to correct the audio and it looks awful. Right then. Okay. Now, what's maybe obvious to you from this graph is that you've got this knotty problem of how to choose the parameters of these coders or indeed how to choose between parameters. And we're entering the murky world here of psychology, aren't we? Because it, it depends upon how people view things. So this is actually, this is a viewing uh, Test chamber that was used for JPEG. Actually, okay. I found it's a beautiful image, isn't it? It's taken from. These were in the days when engineers all wore white shirts and probably had ties and spent a lot of time looking at really grotty pictures. Um, and um, actually, in the transcript, there's a whole little uh, riff on how to choose test images. And there's a very um, there's a very entertaining but somewhat embarrassing story about some of the test images, which I haven't got time to talk to about at the moment. Um, but it involves people, and people are, you know, they're horrible things, they're unreliable and change their minds and all that sort of stuff. So people have tried to, de- engineers have tried to develop proxies for people. And um, there's a very, if you, if you like, um, the Netflix tech blog is excellent, actually, um, because they pipe around so much videos and fascinating blogs on how they measure quality and how, what proxies they use for human quality. Obviously, they can't possibly measure... You can't sit down zillions of people looking at various copies of high-definition video on various platforms, so they use a proxy. I think they use one called VMAF, actually, and I can't quite remember how it works, but you can read the tech blog and and understand it yourself. When you're dealing with coding, though, you're essentially having to do this horrible trade-off between a variety of things. And quality is obvious in the sense that it's the perception that you get from looking at something, Also, the amount of bandwidth you have available affects the quality. So when somebody says, oh, my video code is better than your video code, the first thing you ask is, are you measuring them at the same data rate? And remember, when you're dealing with video, the data rate can be variable because we've got these motion vectors, so suddenly there was a jump edit or a sweeping turn and the motion encoder goes, oh, quick, got to do lots and lots of motion vectors, quick, or I have to put in some iframes, and that's a lot of data. That's a problem if you've got a broadcast channel, which cannot vary its bandwidth very much. And you'll often see, if you're watching a sporting event, not so commonly now, but in the early days of digital television, if you were watching football, you'd see the camera sort of sweep across across here, and then there'd be all this blockiness, and that's the video coder saying, I can't cope, I can't cope, just giving up. So you've got this immediate trade-off between rate and quality. Then you've got computation. So when you're encoding something, you have a restricted amount of computation and if you're encoding it live you have to be confident that your coder can actually do the motion coding in the time available motion coding is a problem because it's a search so the bigger the search the longer it takes be careful that has to be monitored as well and then everything varies with the source and so if you think about this picture you're seeing now of me it's quite easy to code it's got this bit over here it's got me and i'm not moving around very much and it's got a whole load of blackness and uninteresting stuff, which is only a few bits to send, you know. So uh, I'm an example of a nice, easy, cozy thing to code, but there are plenty of examples of video that are just fiendishly difficult to code. So Netflix, for example, tests across a lot of source material so they can be confident about it. Right. Now, you may feel shortchanged. Well, you might feel shortchanged anyway, because I haven't talked about audio. I haven't talked about lots of things. And the reason for that is because every single source has its own lossy compressor. And I suppose it would be fair to say every single human possibly has their own lossy compressor. We haven't got that detailed yet. Um, but just to point out, um, if you were thinking your, JPEG, your MPEG movies were acceptable to play to your snapping shrimp, or something with a non-human vision system, I should think again, because these are all systems are all designed to fool humans. Audio I particularly resent leaving out, because there's a fascinating uh, system known as MPEG Level 3, or MP3, and then there are special coders for speech. So your mobile phone, for example, uses a codec that is... Codec is encoder and decoder, one word. Um, uses a decoder that is particularly tuned to human speech, which is why... Um, If you're playing non-human speech through a mobile telephone channel, it sounds awful. Um, As I'm sure you've noticed, if you try and sing to someone down the telephone, it sounds terrible. Right. Um, Now, I've tried to give you a flavour of how lossless and lossy compression work. And you now have, I think, a good grasp of how they work. What I haven't done, really, is emphasise how incredibly ubiquitous they are. Almost every digital device that you have in your home, on your pocket, or you use as part of your work is incredibly reliant on digital uh, compression. I would say that lossy compression dominates, even though there are at least two domains one can think of where it is a very bad idea to use lossy compression. I mean. You wouldn't want to use lossy compression if you were relying on that evidence in court, would you? Because you're just throwing away masses of data. You wouldn't want to use it in forensic science and you certainly wouldn't want to use it in archival. But it is used in all of those domains, as far as I can see. So that's a, that's a train crash coming down the, uh, coming down the tracks. So, but I'm going to skip that question, really, because it's, it's, it's out there, but it's really a societal question about what you should do about it. The other point I would say is that as you strip out data and lossy compression strips out data aggressively, even lossless compression has the effect of stripping out redundancy, obviously you become highly vulnerable to errors. And almost hand-in-hand with compression comes the need to have a form of coding that can reduce errors. And that is indeed, the topic of the next lecture. It's another one of those digital marvels of the modern age, error control coding, and I look forward to telling you about it then. Thank you. When decoding your floating point number in arithmetic coding, when do you know when to stop? The intervals could go on effectively forever. What a brilliant question, yeah. I I, I would have never have realised... Yeah... I'm glad I asked. Whoever asked that question is either knew the, either knows the answer, or is the most brilliant person to realise it's a good question. There are two answers to it. Uh, one is to use a special symbol called end of block. So you say when you see that symbol, stop. Right. So that's one answer, and that's what I did in that example. Yeah. Um, what's the other way of doing it? Um, the other way of doing it is you, you have to rescale as you go, so you can keep going. And that really is too technical to give, a, to give an answer to. But I do recommend that really, I was going to say really dull, it's not really dull. I mean, I watched all seven hours of it, so you could jolly well watch all seven hours of it. YouTube, YouTube has the answer. Okay, great. Um, another outstanding lecture. Oh, the human thanks. vision system presumably uses semantic compression. Are there image codecs that use this approach yet? Right. So the... Human vision system is split into layers, most people think, from V1 up to whatever you like. And so at a low level, um, no, it doesn't use semantic compression. It uses a little bit of sort of basis type functions, of the t- not, uh, not unlike the DCT. And I want to be really careful here. It actually uses something called Gabor functions, which are easily implemented in the brain. I don't know what happens at high levels in the brain But let's say, yes, it probably uses semantic compression. And so, yes, there are some people working on deep neural network type compression, which is trying to use intermediate representations which are semantic. But you want a compressor, really, I think, that the different people can build the compressor and the decompressor. So semantic compressors have to have a sort of shared understanding of what is meant. And I don't think we're there yet on that. You, you mentioned at the end the uh, the issue about uh, legal, for example, having evidence in, in a court. Mm. But what's your view more generally of the fact that, as you say, coding is ubiquitous in everything we use, and yet we have no control over it? We don't know how much YouTube, and you mentioned this is, this recording is gonna is be made on YouTube, you don't know how much loss you're having on YouTube, you don't know how much loss you're having in other forms of technology that's being used yeah it really it, thank you for raising it It really bugs me um, and there are some things you can do um, but i have to admit i haven't had chance to check the literature to see if they're being done but you know one shouldn't really describe research papers that haven't been written yet but one thing you could do right is you could do a sort of calculus of variation so you would say i've got this thing What are the range of images that could have created this thing, given what I know about the spectrum of JPEG encoders that were out there? Now, if if you did that with audio, for example, you would get some fascinating results. Because uh, one of the things that MPEG does, for example, is if two tones are too close together, it will delete one of them and just give you one on the basis that you can't hear the difference. Well, some people can hear the difference. And if that was a forensic signal, well, that might have been a very important tone that might have been the bleep that was indicating that the gunman was arming the weapon or something you know so so um it's a brilliant question to which i have no answer at all but it bugs me is that there's a reasonable answer <laughs> uh, you you've spoken about uh, films on netflix if you watch a film on live television where it comes over the ether through your aerial yeah. is it um, compressed and if so How does the television cope with changes to the system? Well, so, um, are we talking about old-fashioned analogue TV here? No, digital TV. Digital TV. Oh, yeah, it's compressed, and a lot of compression, yeah. And the thing about that channel is it's... I don't think it has as much variability as the internet channel. So, it's got restricted bandwidth, so the codec has to do an amazing job. It's got to really squeeze its bandwidth and make sure it doesn't have any sort of exceedances. Otherwise, the channel's just going to run out of puff. So that's quite a challenge. So that tends to imply quite a lot of buffering. So if you choose to watch two programs on analog TV next to the digital TV, the digital TV arrives several seconds. I'm trying to remember. It's at least a second, and it might be longer. Right, so it's quite noticeably uh, delayed. And that's... Why is that there? Part of it's production, but I think most of it is um, encoding delay, trying to squeeze it down. So the answer to your question is, yes, it is compressed. Yes, it is probably, almost certainly, harder compressed than video on demand. That said, the BBC player does seem to use quite aggressive video coding, as far as I can tell. They've obviously got some server issues because they, are, they seem to be very reluctant to give you the sort of bandwidth you could get out of, say, Apple TV or, or um, Amazon. I think we are going to have to stop there. I'm sorry. I know that uh, there are possibly a few more questions, but if you wanted to come up at the end, perhaps Professor Harvey could address a few more. But thank you very much, and thank you, Professor.